It is November 19th, 2014. Our message this evening is called Crown Royal. I grew up in a home where they abused a particular drug called Chevis Regal. But when they should happen to bring Crown Royal in the house, I was excited because I could steal the little purple bag and carry my marbles and pocket knives and such in it. So you may have a terribly wicked thought associated with Crown Royal, but for me, it was a beautiful little purple bag that I could carry my pellets and BBs in. And uh, I hope tonight your impression of the words Crown Royal will change. I want to clue you in in the very beginning that there are some things that I'll do during this message for no other purpose then we have some very unique advanced combat training classes going on in our church. And we've just covered the topic of hermeneutics in first century interpretations. And we are going to move on to sermon preparation and homiletics. And because we're doing that, if you listen carefully, if you're in those classes, I will give you hints throughout this message as to how things were derived. If you hear words that you don't understand or concepts that you don't understand, don't let it bother you. It is really just to help some Bible students out that are working hard, that are uh, pressed for time with their families and all of those things, and I want to give them a leg up. Amen? So our message tonight is called Crown Royal. We're going to begin in Matthew, the fourth chapter. I hope tonight to make an impression on you. I feel like we have a miraculous atmosphere. When our babies are healed, when they're born with ten fingers and ten toes, when they're born without the genetic defects that they were marked for abortion for, I think we can rejoice as we've seen life come right out of death. When we get the opportunity to ride in cars with those who proclaim themselves cessationists and smile, and we don't even have to argue. We just can smile really big because we all know what just happened. I think we have reason for joy. Amen? Amen. I'd like to talk to you about our king for a minute. I love him. I'm not ashamed to say I love him. I may look... Like a rugged country boy, but I am melted in my heart for a first century Jew. I am so in love with him that it hurts me. It's difficult to compare it to anything else in my life. When I think about what he has done and the difference that he's made, not just in my life, but in your lives, I'm reduced to childlike tears. Every time I sit across my kitchen table from a couple that I love, and watch his spirit begin to sort out their problems, I love him that much more. Sometimes you get to know somebody, and the more you get to know him, the less you like him. My king is not like that. The more I get to know him, the more I like him, and every day I'm discovering new mysteries. Much to my surprise, the more he gets to know me, the more he seems to delight in me. That is to my surprise. Because as I get closer to him, I see more of my own flaws. I'm often very disappointed in myself. I'm like a leper that's been cleansed by him. And every few years I develop the very same leprosy I was cured from. And I come crawling back and I find him just as merciful as he was the first time. And I'm even less deserving than I was the first time. And he still heals me. In Matthew 4, I want to brag on my king for a minute. Let me pick up in the 8th verse. Say there when you're there. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. He didn't just show him the kingdoms like a good salesman. He showed him their splendor. He didn't explain all of the problems. He only showed Jesus all of the benefits of those kingdoms. All this I will give to you, he said. If you will bow down and worship me. What an offer. For a single act of submission. 
for just one moment in time. And remember, Jesus is in the wilderness. Nobody else is watching. He's got plausible deniability. You want to talk about integrity? Integrity is what you do when the circumstances change, but your commitment has not. Integrity is keeping your vow even when it hurts. Integrity is what you do when no one is looking. My king is the epitome of integrity. If he had simply had a little bend in his knee, he could have got the end without the middle. He's being offered a crown, friends. The Gospel of Luke makes it fairly clear that Satan had the power to give him these kingdoms. They had been given to him. If you will bow down and worship me, you can have these kingdoms. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Do you mean to tell me that a slight curtsy at the request of a demonic power would be tantamount to idolatry, would be rejecting the Lord God Almighty, would be accepting the worship of something alongside of Him. How many times have we found bend in our knee when we should have found resolve in our spirit? But not my king. My king deserved a crown. And he chose a cross. I want to tell you that a man like that is worthy of our admiration. A God like that is worthy of our praise. He could have been crowned and he chose to be crucified. Turn with me to Philippians 2. When you get there, find the fifth verse and then say, I'm there, Pastor. I'm waiting on you. Philippians 2, the fifth verse. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. If he had just bowed his knee in a wilderness with no one looking, he could have had the kingdoms of the world. He came to the fork in the path, and he chose the one not less traveled by, never traveled. He didn't take the easy way. He didn't take the broad path. He gave up that which he would eventually inherit and instead chose the cross of Calvary and the crown of thorns. Sometimes what is expedient is so tempting. Sometimes we feel just a little bit entitled. He actually was entitled to it all. But he turned it down if it required him to even deviate by bending his knee a little bit to the enemy. He wanted the will of his father. Can we worship a God like that? Consider the awesomeness of this statement. The master of the universe would become its victim. Powerless before a squad of soldiers in a garden. God made himself weak for one purpose. To let human beings choose freely for themselves what to do with him. Philip Yancey wrote that in a book. I had trouble with it when he wrote it because I never see Jesus as powerless. Do you remember when they came to get him in the garden? Said they were looking for Jesus of Nazareth and when he said, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. He was never powerless, but he chose to be powerless. And why? Because he gave us the power to do with him whatever we would choose to do. And it was a great test of the human heart. Have you considered the audacious nature of free will? The sun comes up when God tells it to. And it goes down when he tells it to. The stars stand in their place in the sky because he has ordained it to be so. 
The pillars of the earth, the very foundations were set by Him and they obey Him without question. But man, man, He gave the supreme right to say no. Because in giving us the right to say no, it makes it very special when we say yes. He loves us. He wants us to choose Him. Man's response to God's offer of vulnerability. Man's response to God reaching out to Him, not just in the Newer Testament, but throughout the Bible, has always been the same. In Genesis 6, looking at the 5th through 8th verse, it becomes so very clear. We are not... 2400 years BC, some 1600 years or so after the Garden of Eden. In Genesis 6 and verse 5, the Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all of the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth. And his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I've created from the face of the earth, men and animals and creatures that move along the ground and birds of the air, for I am grieved that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. We find the earth in such terrible condition. Only 1,000 or 2,000 years into Adam's lineage that God has to wipe the entire planet, but he found one family that he could work with. When you think of the earth at this time, we have Noah, we have Ham, Shem, and Japheth, four men and their corresponding brides, eight in all. They get on a boat, and when they get off, it represents all that is the new beginning, all that is the new world. But when you think about the very fact that God had to do this, mankind at this time had one language. We have not yet had the flood in Genesis 6. We've not yet had Peleg dividing the earth, and all mankind's heart was evil. God reaches out. And what does he find in his gift of free will? He's found that the inclination and leanings of his creation spit in his face. By the time you get to Genesis 11, in the first verse, we're now post-flood. But we still have one language. All mankind is there. The descendants of Ham, Shem, and Japheth are there. And in verse 1 of the 11th chapter, now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As men move eastward, they found the plain of Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Man speaking one language, all the descendants of men there at one time. And what are they unified around? Absolute defying of God's mandate to man to spread out over the whole earth, to be fruitful and to multiply, to carry His presence to the furthest corners of the globe and drive out all darkness. In Genesis 6, we see God has reached out to man and man's response is an evil inclination. In Genesis 11, we see all mankind in unified rebellion against God. Turn with me to John, the 19th chapter. Say there when you were there. What do you do with a king who could have had a crown and chose a cross instead? In John 19, 19, Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read the sign for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And the sign was written in Hebrew, in Latin, 
and in Greek. In the language of Shem, the language of Ham, and the language of Japheth, all mankind is giving testimony to the fact that given the free will to choose, all the sons of Noah again say, go ahead and kill him. We would rather have someone like Barabbas than someone like the great Emmanuel of God. What does that say about mankind's response? Every time you see the whole of humanity represented, you see that it is bent on evil. And what is it that Jesus turned down? When he chooses a cross over a crown. Turn with me to Exodus 29. Let's examine the word crown for a minute. Sometimes if you want to understand the culture, you can start with its words. And in starting with their words, you might look at the etymology of the words. And when you do that, when you see what their origins are, when you see what their beginnings are, it begins to show you about the cultural values and norms. As you compare that word with its usage throughout the Bible, you can begin to see the things that they valued and what they represented. We see the word crown used. Exodus 29 in verse 6. Put the turban on his head and attach the sacred diadem to the turban. Now, in English, when you think of a turban, you might think of a man from India, a Sikh. You might think of a TV show in the 60s, I Dream of Genie. You might think of a genie. This word turban in Hebrew is translated crown in most instances. And it is the word nezer. N-E-Z-E-R. It's Strong's number 5145. And nezer is used anytime someone is consecrated to the Lord. Anytime somebody is ordained of office. So if you have a high priest and you anoint him with oil, that very act is called crowning him. The word crown came to mean that which it symbolized. If it is the consecrating of a man, if it is the ordination of a man, then the symbol of his right to rule would be his crown. You might say that the pashat here is the plainest and simplest meaning is that a high priest wore a symbol of his right to rule on his head. Every high priest had a nazer. Turn with me to Psalm 132. Say there when you were there. In Psalm 132, while examining the meaning of this word crown, looking at what it is that Jesus turned down. Psalm 132, pick up with me in verse 13. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling. This is my resting place forever and ever. Here I will sit enthroned for I have desired it. I will bless her with abundant provisions. Her poor will I satisfy with food. I will clothe her priest with salvation and her saints will sing for joy. Here I will make a horn grow for David and set up a lamp for my anointed one. I will clothe his enemies with shame, but the crown on his head will be resplendent. When you look at a passage of scripture in the Hebrew text and you see that someone is clothed with shame or clothed with salvation, since you cannot literally wear salvation, this points to something in Hebrew called a remez. It hints that this is to be taken metaphorically. Well, let me ask you, If every high priest is supposed to wear a crown, if this scripture then says that God will clothe his enemies with shame but crown his anointed one with something resplendent, then we might need to wonder what it is he's supposed to be crowned with. He turned down a crown that he might receive a cross. But it will not always be so. Turn with me to Zechariah 9. By the way, 
Exodus is the law. The Psalms are the writings. And Zechariah, the ninth chapter, is a part of the prophets. When you want to demonstrate something as thoroughly invested in the Word of God, consistent from beginning to end, the Hebrew people called it, quoted from the law, the prophets, and the writings to show a consistency in interpretation. And in Zechariah 9 and verse 16, the Lord their God will save them on that day as a flock of His people. They will sparkle in His land like jewels in a crown. How attractive and beautiful they will be. Grain will make the young men thrive and new wine the young women. In Exodus, we saw that the Peshat, the plain and the simple, was every high priest deserves a crown. In the writing, Psalm 132, we see that the text hints that the crown may represent something. And in Zechariah, the prophets, we find a derash being made, a comparison between scriptures that says this high priest would be crowned with something, but it would be people, be resplendent. Jesus turned down the kingdoms of the world, but he never turned down the people of the world. We are his inheritance. The apostle Paul was trained under Gamaliel, Gamaliel was considered to be one of the greatest rabbis in the history of Judaism. He's often called the prince of rabbis. Paul thought like a rabbi. He taught like a rabbi because he was a rabbi. Putting these scriptures together from the law, the writings, and the prophets, seeing a pashat, a remez, and a darash, Paul comes up with something in Hebrew called a sod. It's when you get a revelation from God that is not apparent from the verse, it's not explained in the verse, and yet, deep down in your bones, you know that it's true. And what was Paul's great revelation? Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians, the second chapter. Say there when you were there. For what is our hope? This is the second chapter in the 19th verse. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when He comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and our joy. It turns out that the thing that Paul was working for was not another planet called heaven. The thing that Paul was working for was not lollipops in the sky. It turns out that Paul understood Jesus was a high priest. He was a high priest that deserved a crown. He was a high priest that deserved to be crowned with a resplendent crown. He was a high priest that deserved to be crowned with the handiwork of God in his people. So Paul makes a stunning leap and he looks at people in Thessalonica. He also does it to the Philippian church and he says, you are the crown of God. You can find this in Philippians 4.1. He says it very plainly. Therefore, my brothers, you whom I love and long for, my crown, my joy and my crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. It's an interesting thing. How many of you ladies get up every day and do some paint and body work? You put on your clothes and you go and you look in the mirror and you decide whether or not you need to move your fenders. Whether or not to turn on your windshield wipers. Or in the name of Jesus to put away your headlights. You might go paint your face. You're getting ready to look beautiful for the world. What a revelation to find out that the king of kings wants to be adorned with something. He wants to be adorned with you. What does that mean, Larissa? What does it mean to wake up in the morning 
And know that the King of Kings considers you a symbol of His right to rule. What does that mean, Spencer? To say, the King of Kings doesn't want a turban. He doesn't want gold hammered into ornate jewelry. He wants a symbol of His right to rule to be found in the life of an ordinary man. When we see an immigrant from Egypt show up in our midst and he's filled with the Holy Spirit of God. This is not just a beautiful jewelry. This is a symbol of God's right to rule and it's moving around the earth like a king would show off his crown. So how is it a symbol of his right to rule? When you see the dominion, the kingdom of God found in the heart of an ordinary man, it's like showing off his crown. And we have the audacity to think poorly of ourselves. We struggle with things like self-esteem. If you could see yourself the way that the living God sees you, you would never again struggle with your self-esteem. You would struggle with one thing and one thing only. Am I displaying His right to rule? You'd no longer care what shade of lipstick you are. These days, people like shades of gray, and it's disgusting. But the King of Kings has made you beautiful by your deeds. Oh, someone should say amen. In fact, husbands, say amen for your wives. We are to be His crown. But not only us, also those for whom we labor. We can think of ourselves as God's prize. And that is a place to start. We are His inheritance. But then you must ask yourself the question, are you and you alone His inheritance? And if that's not the case, then 1 Corinthians, the ninth chapter, and the 25th verse begins an important dialogue for you. It says, everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last. But we do it to get a crown that will last forever. For what are you training? For what are you competing? Do you just need the latest car? Do you need the attention of the opposite sex? What is it that you're competing for and training for? Is it a crown for the king of kings? Or is it something to distract you from what you should be doing now? Paul said everyone who competes goes into strict training. Are you in strict training? They do it to get a crown that won't last. This is a type of teaching, a cultural influence among the Hebrew people called Calvay Comer. It teaches you that what's true in a light matter is also true in a heavy matter. If an athlete will train for something that fades, how much more should we train for something that will never fade? Oh, a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. Paul's life had purpose. And it wasn't just to see himself a crown of God. He labored to see you a crown of God. So that he could write to the Thessalonians, what is our crown? What is our joy? Is it not you? What do you take pride in? Do you sit around and wonder whether your life is insignificant? Do you often feel yourself a failure? Do you struggle with feelings of inadequacy? Is your life the story of hope deferred? The one thing that we ought to be able to look at. The one thing in our life, and if you're a parent, it began with the day that that heartbeat began is what we have invested in other people. It is a crown. It is a crown first for you. It is a crown. It is the work of the living God displayed in your life and is the only thing that matters. What you build for IBM, what you build for Dale, it'll fall away and burn. But what's invested in someone else will last forever. The law, the writings... And the prophets testify to this if you're able to see it. It is a consistent theme throughout the Bible. Every high priest deserves his crown. 
There's never been a king. In fact, very often, the very symbol of the king's right to rule is the presence or absence of a crown. When Saul died in in the book of Samuel, someone brought to David the crown of Saul. It symbolized his right to rule. What an interesting thing. What will you bring to Jesus? Let's start with your own life. James 1 and the 12th verse. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. Because when he has stood the test, somebody say it, stood the test. The untested life is the unfruitful life. The untested life is the unproductive life. The untested life is still immature. It's still unprofitable. So how can we shy away from tests? Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. If you want to finish this race with a crown, shockingly enough, you have to finish the race. We can begin to run. We can instruct others in how they should run. Recently, a brother sent me a text. It had a question to pastors. What three things occupy your mind daily as you pastor? What are your concerns? I didn't respond because I was surrounded by people. But today I was asked again. My very first response would be that in preaching to others, I would not find my own life unacceptable to the Lord. The very first responsibility of every Christian is that you endure, that you persevere, that you stand the test, that you grow to maturity. You cannot stop along the way. You cannot pause along the way. It's an amazing thing when this becomes your focus. You don't have time for self-pity and apathy. You find only a drive to please your king. I would say that your second responsibility is found in 1 Peter 5, starting in the second verse. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers not because you must, but because you are willing as God wants you to be, not greedy for money, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. There's a difference between doing what you must in the kingdom, being motivated by penalty, being motivated by social stigma, not wanting to become a pariah. We're often obedient. That's entirely different than being willing, desiring, yearning. To set an example. The kind of heart that steps out of their car and says, I must be careful of what I do today because I don't want to ruin my witness. I don't understand. It's all over the church world. It's even thought of as holy. I would say the heart that this scripture is expressing is the kind that steps out of the car and says, what do I get to do today to set an example for my brothers because there's a crown to be had. Oh, church, people are watching. You say, but I am not a pastor. I say, are you not a kingdom of priests? You say, I'm not in full-time ministry. I say, there is no other kind. Who's watching your life? And if they're watching, are you running as one to win the crown? Are you simply trying to maintain what you think you've already been awarded You know, if you tell any athletic team that victory is inevitable, it's a sure way to find defeat. You put them in the position of the underdog and you will find untapped resources of strength. You will find new levels of character, new levels of exertion that the world had never seen. This is why we love the story of the underdog. Nobody wants to go and watch the team that you already know was going to win, win. 
You love to see the reversal of fortune. It's in our nature because it's you. The worst demon that has crept into Christian theology has to do with the idea that the crown is already in hand. It's anything but. Paul said he runs with a purpose. He's in strict training. I would say that we stand the test, we endure, and we set an example for others. Look at 2 Timothy 4 and the 8th verse. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for His appearing. There's a reason Paul could say this. It was the last pastoral letter he wrote to his son, Timothy. His life was being poured out like a drink offering. He had fought the good fight. At this point, the only question in his mind was, it would be good to die now, Lord. But I think I should remain that I might help build some more crowns. Church, We must stand and endure the test. We must set an example for others. Like Paul, we must fight, finish, and fellowship. We are fond as American Christians of thinking of Jesus as our personal Savior and our personal spiritual walk. There is no such thing as your personal Savior and your personal spiritual walk. He is the Lord of all mankind and the ransom given for them. And He desires that they be saved. It is not yours and yours personally. You may have experienced Him personally, but the world needs to experience Him corporately. Your personal spiritual walk, what could that mean? Surely we can't be deceived in thinking that what we do doesn't affect those around us. That we are somehow an island to ourselves. Paul did not just endure the test. He set an example for others. He could say that he fought, he finished, and he fellowshiped the whole way. What will your crown look like? Will it have some fight in it? Will it have finish in it? And will it be built upon the bedrock of fellowship? Turn with me to Corinthians, the third chapter. Say there when you are there. When you get to the third chapter, put your finger on the twelfth verse. Now pick up in the 10th verse. (laughs) By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder and someone else is building on it. But each one should be careful how he builds. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Christ Jesus or Jesus Christ. If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, It's amazing how gold shows up in the Bible as divinity and silver shows up in the Bible as redemption. Costly stones, wood, hay, or straw. His work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burned up, He will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the flames. Oh, this ought to bring up several questions. Among those who build, their work will be tested. What about those who didn't? What about those who said, I gets mines? What about those Christians who simply said, I'm saved? And I'm happy to be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord. What if they've repeated the mantra their entire life, I'm just an old sinner saved by grace, so they never achieved anything more? 
than just being a sinner in the grace of God. Let me ask you, is that a crown fitting our king? Or is that more like a Burger King crown? Something a kindergartner would make. Would it pass through the eternal flames of Jesus Christ? Or would it be burned up as rubbish? Now let's move to those who built. Some build with the divinity of God. Some build with the redemption of God. Some use the costly stones that are the lives of the believers. Others wood, hay, stubble, and straw. These are among those who wanted to build something for God. You mean not everything you venture to do in His name will survive the test? You know, this ought to be frightening. If the things that we venture to do in His name don't all survive the test, how about all that we failed to do in His name? Every high priest gets his crown. His crown is supposed to be the lives of the people that symbolize his right to rule. Oh, wow. What would be written on your gravestone? An excellent father. Good businessman. Oh, that it would be known to the whole world. This one was obedient to Jesus Christ. Then everything else is implied. But you can be an excellent father and have been disobedient your entire life. You can be an excellent businessman and have been disobedient your entire life naked on the other side. When you think of scriptures like this, I never like to camp out in the New Testament alone. This is a pastor who likes to demonstrate things starting in the law, moving to the writings, exemplified in the prophets, and then the icing on the cake becomes the Newer Testament. We don't have time tonight to show you that in every way, so let me just show you Deuteronomy 16, 16. Three times a year, all your men must appear before the Lord your God at the place He will choose. At the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks, and the Feast of Tabernacles, no man should appear before the Lord empty-handed. I've heard this scripture quoted for one purpose and one purpose only in today's lukewarm, milksop, mamby-pamby church. It's used to fleece your pockets. It's used to say, Oh, all that you would bring into the storehouse of God, your check. Shame on the men who do it. If you bring your entire life before the Lord, the check will follow. But a lot of people have tipped God in the hopes that they can assuage their guilt without ever giving Him their lives. And among those who say they've given their lives, how many can, like Paul, point to a city and say, what are you if you're not my crown, my joy? It's not enough to bring him your life and your life alone. He invested his right to rule in you so that you could share his right to rule with every other person. Does the crown that the king of kings wears deserve just one stone? Does he deserve a tiara fit for a 16-year-old beauty pageant? I would say that the King of Kings deserves many crowns. If you wanted to do something like a darash, you might look at parables in Matthew 25. You might see that the virgins were sleeping and empty-handed, and so the Lord said, I don't know you. You might see that those who receive talents the one who did not increase what he had, the Lord said, he who does not have even what he has will be taken from him. Throw that worthless servant outside. You might look and see that those who were called goats were called goats because they stood before the Lord empty-handed, never having done the king's work. And you might even come to the conclusion that we're not talking about goats, talents, and virgins. 
We're talking about men who are either a crown for the Lord or have shown up empty-handed. Church, there will be a day that the earth and sky flee from His presence. What will you have in your hand for Him? If wood, hay, stubble, and straw will not survive that great day, all that you will stand with is what He invested in you and what you in turn entrusted to other men. Are you beginning to understand the motivation of the apostles then? Why did they love not their lives so much as to shrink from death? Why did they go to the ends of the earth to invest the kingdom in others? Had they been 21st century American Christians, they would have been happy to be blessed, claimed their blessing and prayed for jets. But they knew that the glory was in bringing many sons to the King of Kings because He traded His crown for a cross. And that cross purchased your life and your life becomes a crown for the King of Kings. It's very possible that you could hear this message and feel such a burden that you would think, how how could I ever give Him anything of worth? In fact, all of Christian theology seems to surround and revolve around the idea that you have nothing of worth to give Him. Can we say poppycock from the pulpit? Rubbish? Garbage? Balderdash. See, I, I, we can do this all day. But you know what you're thinking of the word that we want to say. What a lie. What a lie. Go no further than John 15. Let us look at John 15 for only a cursory view. And you tell me whether you have nothing to offer him. John 15, starting in verse 4, Remain in me, and I will remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear what? How hard is it to produce a crown? All you have to do is abide in the King of Kings. All you have to do is be connected to Him. It turns out that He can turn down a cross. I'm sorry, a crown and take a cross. Because He's a bit of a crown factory. He is the King of Kings. He is the Lord of Lords. He is the ultimate example of what it is to rule. And as the Psalms say, as soon as a foreigner hears his voice, they come cringing to him and become obedient to him. All we have to do is know him well enough to arrange the introduction to others. You think Zadok Jewelers or some department store has got impressive jewelry. The King of Kings will be adorned with the obedience of the nations and nothing will stop that. The question is, will you get to participate in it? First and foremost, will you be a crown? Secondly, will you bring Him the lives of others that are also crowns? Thirdly, Will you disciple well enough that your disciples make disciples because then you become a virtual crown factory? Philippians 1 in verse 22 has to do with a man who knew that he could be at the end of his life, who knew that no matter what his circumstances, no matter where he was, imprisoned or not imprisoned, with money or no money, whether his sound system worked or didn't work, whether his friends stuck by him or didn't stick by him, he knew what his life would produce because he knew who he was connected to. Listen to this confidence in Philippians 1, starting in verse 22. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean... Fruitful labor for me. Is the man arrogant? How can he say that? He knew who he was connected to. Tell me that you have nothing of worth to bring the king. Tell me 
that you are just a sinner. The Apostle Paul said, I would rather go be with Jesus, but if I remain, it'll definitely be fruitful labor. How could he say such a thing? He knew who he was connected to. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. So that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ will overflow on account of me. What are you living for? You know, this brings into context an entirely different view of the parables. What if the parable of the virgins is simply saying, don't sleep your time away. You've been given something precious. Make more of it. What if the parable of the talents is saying, don't let fear cause you to hide in a hole. Make more of what you've been given because the king is coming and he wants more. He deserves more. What if the parable of the sheep and goats is not really about eschatology at all? What if it is entirely about saying, if you fail to try, you're a goat. If you will just try, the Lord will... Multiply your efforts in ways you didn't even know it was happening. Church, the question really comes down to, even if we preach a message on crowns, even if we look at Crown Royal, the environment of our land is going to cause some to go, my crown's bigger than yours. My crown's good, my crown, this crown, my crown, this crown, my crown. And then you forget the purpose for all of your work and you find that you've been building with hay, stubble, and straw and you thought it was precious stones because you have one purpose for your crown. Whether your crown is your life or God willing the lives of those that have seen His right to rule. Revelation 4 starting in the 10th verse, tells us what we do with these crowns. The 24 elders fall down before Him who sits on the throne, and they worship Him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord, in God to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. Everything that you will do in your life for Him and everything that you do in your life for Him as displayed in the lives of others becomes a gift for your King. The question is, do we stand before Him empty-handed and say, I was just glad to be saved? Or do we say, you are a high priest worthy of a crown? And Lord, I have brought you a crown. You have my life and the lives of those that I shared you with. Church, when you begin building something that you recognize as precious, it's hard to let go of. More men have set out to build a crown for Jesus and tried it on just to see how it might fit and could not let it go any more than the little ring in the story written by Tolkien. This shows up when we disciple but cannot send. This shows up when we can pray for missions but not go. This shows up when we can talk about evangelism but we cannot do it. This shows up when we praise Him with our lips, but our hearts are getting far from Him. To lay a crown at His feet means that He built it in you and you gave it right back to Him and have left yourself impoverished. say, why? Because that's exactly what He did for you. He could have had all the riches of the world and for you. 
he chose a cross. So if any man would come after him, they must first deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow him. This is our great chance to give him the crown that he gave up for us, and it is a high honor in the kingdom. Our worship team is going to come up here, and you have to hear this verse. You have to hear this verse. Can we agree that most of Revelation is prophecy? Can we agree that the book called the Apocalypse contains events in many cases that are yet unfilled? Is there, is there anybody in the room that disagrees with that? Will they come about? If God said it and we've not yet seen it, will it come about? Have you ever noticed that God says Israel will go into captivity? And then when they go into captivity, he says through the prophet Jeremiah, it'd be 70 years. But then he raises up Daniel, who's reading Jeremiah. And he goes, I learned from reading Jeremiah that the captivity would be 70 years. So I repented for the nation and I prayed. And then the captivity came to an end. So God prophesies something that is going to happen without any doubt. But he still raises up people that have to do it. I need you to hear this verse because on it hinges the world of prophecy. In Revelation 19, starting in verse 11, I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are... On his head are whose crowns? Where did they come from? He turned them down. It's going to take you building them and laying them at his feet. This is why he said, I send you into all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, making disciples, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded. He sent you out to get his crowns. And when he returns... He will have them. And He will not just be the king of political kingdoms. He'll be the king of kings. Proverbs 25.2 says, It is to the glory of God to conceal a matter, to the glory of kings to search it out. You became a king the day you entered His kingdom. Now your job is to make Him the king of as many kings as there are kings in this world. You become a crown factory. You turn out something better than crown royal. If you believe He's coming back on a white horse, faithful and true, and that He will have many crowns, then you better get to getting crowns. Amen? Amen. Let's finish the verse and we're going to stand to our feet as we do it. You can stand up. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on His head are many crowns. He has a name written on Him that no one but He Himself knows. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and His name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following Him, riding on white horses, and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of His mouth comes a sharp sword in which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty on his robe and on his thigh he has the name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords is he your king is he your king then the first crown you give him is your life but he deserves more he deserves their lives too he's not the king just of you he's the king of kings and the lord of lords and he doesn't get one crown or two he gets many crowns we are not doorkeepers in the house of god we are the hope of the nations as we carry his right to rule to them oh may you be crowned with many crowns and may you lay them at the feet of the King of Kings. Nobody in here is too far gone. You have at least one crown to give Him and it's your life. Make it beautiful. If you have children, you have a built-in crown factory. Start there and work outward. If you have a workplace, oh, you have a mining operation, find the precious stones, polish the metals. 
get in the divine vein. You're the workmanship of God created in Christ Jesus to do good work. And one day that work is all you will have for an eternity to offer Him. I, for one, don't plan to be empty-handed. You could wallow in self-pity if you want to, but I've never seen a crown built that way. When they see the right of the king to rule in you, they will want a crown. They'll want to be one. 